All right. If you have not already opened up your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, please do so. Or open there in your apps. Get ready for a Bible study. Now, um, if you're not familiar with Acts, it's 28 chapters long. And if you had to divide it into two sections, then a a very natural place to do it is between chapters 8 and 9. The first section is the mission of the church prior to the conversion of Saul. And then the second section would be the mission of the church after the conversion of Saul. And so last year, we made it through the first eight chapters up to the conversion of Saul. And this year, we're going to pick up here at the beginning of chapter 9 with the conversion of Saul. Now, I don't believe that I am overstating the importance of Saul's conversion. In fact, I think it was so important to Luke's storytelling that he actually includes Saul's conversion three times in the book of Acts. It's here in Acts chapter 9, and then we find it again in Acts chapter 22, and then again in Acts chapter 26. In William Willimon's commentary on Acts, he observes that only an event of the greatest importance would merit such repetition by an author whose hallmark is brevity and concision. And so, let's begin our study by looking at this important event here at the beginning of Acts chapter 9. And I want to begin by asking you this question. What does it mean to be converted? If I were to ask you, are you converted? How would you answer that question? One of my favorite thinkers and writers is Scott McKnight. And here's how he defines conversion. He writes, conversion tells the story of an old life transformed into a new life. He goes on to say, the telltale sign of conversion, I love this phrase, is a rewritten autobiography. The telltale sign of conversion in someone's life is a rewritten autobiography. I really like that. Here's who I was then, but here's who I am now. That's conversion. And this is the most famous conversion in all of Scripture. So what do we do with it? How do we study it? What can we learn from it? Because in many ways, it's, it's, it's unlike my conversion, right? I didn't, I didn't have a Damascus Road experience. I was not struck down by divine lightning. The resurrected Jesus did not appear to me in the same way he appears to Saul, And that's just the reality of it. So in many ways, this conversion is very different from mine. However, there are some ways that I think the conversion of Saul is very similar to mine and to yours. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at four similarities as we look at conversion this morning. 
As we start, I want to share some pictures with you, and so I've got a slide that I'd like to share. Um, because I wanted to have some illustrations for you, and I know lots of us like to watch movies and television, and so these are three that I've seen. Perhaps you've seen all three of these. Perhaps maybe you've just seen one of them. I tried to hit all the generations. I tried to cover everybody this morning, so I think maybe you'll be, relate, be able to relate with one of these. So the first picture there, uh, that's actually from the novel. Uh, and it was made into a musical, Les Miserables, by Victor Hugo, and it's a picture of Inspector Javert, there played by the gladiator. That was in the 2012 version. Um, the second picture is from the movie The Fugitive. It's one of my favorite movies back in 1993, um, starring Harrison Ford, plays the doctor, and Tommy Lee Jones there, he plays U.S. Deputy Marshal Samuel Garrard. And then the third picture is the most recent. It's from a Star Wars miniseries that's out on Disney Plus titled Andor. And uh, that character's name is Cyril Karn. So hopefully you've seen one of those, or at least familiar. Um, but there's a characteristic of each one of these figures that's the same kind of runs throughout all three. There's, there's something that these men have in common. Each one of them is obsessed in their pursuit of someone else. In the case of Javert, he's pursuing Jean Valjean. Hope I got this right. I've been working on that all week. I've been in my office like, all right, I <laughs> For, for Deputy Gerard, he's pursuing Dr. Richard Kimball. And then for Cyril Karn, he's pursuing Cassian Andor. And each one is just fanatical. They're obsessed with their pursuits of these individuals. And I wanted to share them with you this morning because I think it's important to have those images in mind, to have that understanding in mind when we're introduced to Saul, because he just sort of pops onto the scene here, but you need to know that he's just as obsessed. Saul is just as fanatical as any one of these guys are with his pursuit of the Lord's disciples. Let's go back to chapter 8, Acts chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. Right after the stoning of Stephen, we read that godly men buried Stephen. Remember, he was the first Christian martyr and mourned deeply for him. But then in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, but Saul began to destroy the church. Now, that word translated destroy is the same word that's used to describe how wild and ferocious beasts tear apart the flesh of their prey. And so Paul is presented here as this wild and ferocious beast going from house to house, dragging off men and women and putting them into prison. That's our introduction to him. And then here we find them again at the beginning of Acts chapter 9 in verse 1. Meanwhile... 
Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. We, we see that this guy is next level. He's, he's one of these guys. In his obsession and in his pursuit of the Lord's disciples. In fact, in verse 2, we actually see the extent that he'll go to in his pursuit. After the persecution had broken out there in Jerusalem and the disciples were scattered, evidently there was a group that made their way up north to the Syrian town of Damascus, which was some 150 miles away from Jerusalem. That was a good week's journey to get from Jerusalem to Damascus. But he was so obsessed in his pursuit of wanting to squash this movement and wanting to capture all of the Lord's disciples and drag them to prison that he even got the right paperwork so that he could take that week's journey north and round up all that he could find and drag them to Jerusalem. Let me ask you a question. You can take those pictures down. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever pursued anyone or anything like that? With that kind of fervor, with that kind of intensity? I don't know. I, you know, I, um, I really got into basketball when I was in high school and uh, played two years of small college, nothing to NAIA. But I, I was obsessed with it. I, I pursued basketball with that kind of obsession. Um, I pursued it in that way. And I, maybe you have something like that. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's, maybe it's a career. Maybe it's, that's how you pursue your education, right? We, we all pursue things with certain fervor and intensity. What if I told you this morning... That God is pursuing a relationship with you in that manner. If the creator of the universe, what have I told you that the creator of the universe is in pursuit of you in that same way? You see, Saul learned an important lesson about God on the road to Damascus. Saul just thought that he was the pursuer. When in fact, what he learned on the road was that he was the one being pursued. God was in pursuit of him. Jesus tells three parables in Luke chapter 15 that really changed everything for me. When I come to understand what Jesus was teaching us in those three parables in Luke 15, it changed everything for me. It changed the way I understood who God is. One's about a shepherd in in search of a sheep. Another's about a woman in search of a lost coin. And, And most likely, it was a coin that a bride would wear in her wedding headband. I think that's important to note there as I've studied that that parable. Most likely, it was in that culture, the bride would wear a coin that they'd wear in their wedding headband. And so the equivalent is losing a wedding ring. 
It's not just like she lost some money. And then the third's about a father in search of a lost son. And the point of the parables is that you and I are these items of tremendous value that have lost our way. And God is the shepherd. And God is the woman. And God is the father who searches intently for what is lost. And so the first similarity of Saul's conversion with mine is that God also pursued me. Another way of saying that is that God initiates the relationship. You see, without God taking the initiative on the road to Damascus, Saul would have just continued on with his fanatical pursuit of destroying the church. But God stepped in. And the same is true with you and me. If God had not taken the initiative, if God had not pursued me, if God had not so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, then I would have just continued on in my fanatical pursuits of fill in the blank. Basketball, money, career, relationships, pleasure. I would have continued in hot pursuit. Listen, I, I would not be up here in front of you today if God had not taken the initiative. If he had not pursued me, I would still be lost and dead in my sin. And if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I want you to hear this. God is pursuing you. The very fact that you're here in this room hearing me say that God wants to be in a personal relationship with you is evidence of his pursuit. The creator of the universe loves you so much and he's made a way to be in relationship with you and that way has a name. His name is Jesus. I was telling someone this week that your worst sins are not going to keep you out of heaven. And your good works are not going to get you into heaven. All that matters is how you respond to Jesus Christ. He's the way. He's all that matters. And that that brings me to the second similarity between Saul's conversion and mine. It's the second similarity between Saul's conversion and mine. It's all, it's all about an encounter with Jesus Christ. It's all about an encounter with Jesus Christ. Conversion happens when someone meets Jesus. 
That's conversion. If I had to give you my best definition of what conversion is. So first of all, conversion's not going to happen unless God pursues us, unless God initiates it. Well, then what is it? What is conversion when it does happen? It's an encounter with Jesus. It's an encounter with Jesus. When someone tells me they don't believe in Jesus, I say, that's okay, you just haven't met him. You just haven't met him. Because when you meet him, when you encounter him, it absolutely changes everything. Saul meets Jesus Christ on the road, and everything changes. Everything for him changes. Back in um, 1998, that's almost, we were taking some time, Stephen and I both going back in time a little bit. My younger brother and I, uh, Chris, my younger brother, um, we were both in Nashville at the time. I was uh, working on my master's at Lipscomb, and he was in law school at Vanderbilt, and we hosted a Bible study in our apartment. On Thursday evenings. Now, the reason we did it on Thursday nights is because um, professional wrestling was Thursday night. And so, the professional wrestling, WWF, it would go till 10 o'clock. And that's how we got the guys to come to the Bible study. The guys would come, watch professional wrestling, and then the girls would show up at 10 o'clock for the Bible study. And the guys would stay because the girls came. That's kind of how that worked. But uh, we had about eight or nine of us in this Bible study, and uh, it was a great time. Um, Amanda Jones, who was, used to be our children's minister here, was a part of that Bible study. And one night in August 1998, Amanda Jones came to our Bible study. And I was leading the Bible study that night, and I was sitting there in my chair, and I had my Bible out and my notes, and I was getting ready and, you know, getting ready to to the Bible study, getting excited. And I look up, and the front door opened up into the living room, and Amanda Jones came in, and then behind her walked in Karen Nicholson of Lexington, Kentucky. I met Karen Nicholson that night in August of 1998, and Everything changed. (laughs) And if that's true, and it is, then when we meet Jesus, everything changes. It's conversion. Conversion happens. When Karen and I were uh, doing campus ministry at the University of Georgia, um, we had uh, several, we'd, you know, we'd do campus ministry, all the events, and I'll never forget this one uh, guy who came with, with Heath. Heath was, a, Heath was a student in our ministry, and he was super involved, and his roommate would come. Now, his roommate didn't grow up. Uh, going to church or in a Christian home, um, but he was a good friend of Heath, and he came and just really enjoyed being around everybody. Um, and so I got to know him, and I, I asked him one night at one of our events, I said, so what do you think about all this? 
I was like, what do you think about Jesus? He said, I don't know. I said, well, can we start studying? I'd like to, I'd like to tell you about him. He said, sure. And so we started getting together, and, and, and what we did, we just took the gospel of Mark. And I just would have him read a chapter. He'd read the first chapter. He'd read it a couple times, and then we'd get together and talk about it. Go three or four days would go by, and then we'd talk about it. Next chapter, three or four days go by, and then we'd get together and we'd talk about it. We made it to chapter 8. And he came by my office in the student center, and he said, Barrett, I'm in. What do I do? So I called Karen. This was before we had kids, so we were more flexible in those days. I said, I called Karen. Uh, I said, I'm going to be home a little bit later this evening because we got in his truck, and he was a fly fisherman. And there was a stream up in the North Georgia mountains where he loved to go fly fish. And that's where he wanted to be baptized. And so we drove up an hour away into the North Georgia mountains. I baptized him into the Lord. And we arrived back, and a bunch of college students met us at the Cracker Barrel, and we celebrated. And I share that story with you because I got a front row seat. I had the privilege of watching a man meet Jesus Christ on the pages of Scripture. He met him. He met Jesus here. You see, in verse 5, when Saul heard these words, I am Jesus, everything changed for him. Saul had asked, who are you, Lord? He asked that because he didn't recognize his voice. He hadn't met him. He didn't know him. But now he knew. I am Jesus. Saul meets Jesus on the road, and it changes everything. Look, you know, if you're waiting for something like what happened to Saul to happen to you, then don't hold your breath. In fact, later, Saul would write in 1 Corinthians 15 that the resurrected Jesus appeared to James first, then to all the other apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. And Scripture affirms that there was not another post-resurrection appearance of Jesus after Saul. Saul was the last of all to have Jesus appear to him in this way. But this doesn't mean that we still don't meet Jesus Conversion happens when we meet Jesus. When you encounter him on the pages of Scripture, when the Holy Spirit reveals him to you through his disciples. In John chapter 20, John tells us that Thomas was not with the others when Jesus appeared to them following his resurrection. And Thomas said, hey, unless I see him, unless I put my hands here and there, I'm not going to believe. Well, a week later, Jesus shows up to Thomas and says, hey, put your fingers. Do what you need to do. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And then do you remember what Jesus told him? 
So good. He said, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have still believed. That's you and me. That's you and me. You see, we're not going to see him in the same way Thomas did. And we're not going to see him in the same way that Paul did. But we're still going to meet him. Conversion happens when you meet Jesus. Third. The third similarity between Saul's conversion and mine is that we both surrendered our life to Jesus Christ. You see, conversion always involves surrender. In his commentary on Acts, John Stott, when speaking about conversion, he writes this. He says that he does not use the phrases decided for Christ or committed to Christ, though decision and commitment are certainly involved. He says conversion at its root is not a decision, nor a commitment, but a surrender to the supreme authority of Jesus Christ. Now we're getting somewhere. Listen again to the question that Jesus asked Saul in verse 4. Jesus asked him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Don't miss the pronoun. Jesus does not ask, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my disciples? He asks, why are you persecuting me? You see, Jesus informs him here of an important truth. When you sin against the disciple of Jesus, you're sinning against Jesus himself. Now, this is not a new concept with Jesus. People of God have understood sin in this way for centuries. If you go way back to Genesis chapter 39, we read about Joseph being in charge of the household of the Egyptian official Potiphar. And one day, Potiphar's wife said to Joseph, come to bed with me. Joseph refused. And listen to his response in verse 9. Joseph says, no one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Of course, to go to bed with her would be a sin against her, and it would be a sin against Potiphar. But first and foremost... Primarily, Joseph saw it as a sin against God. David, after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, wrote these words to God in Psalm 51 and verse 4. He said, against you, God, and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Well, of course, David sinned against Bathsheba and he sinned against her husband Uriah. But first and foremost, primarily, David had sinned against God. It's it's the same reasoning that Jesus uses when asked about which is the greatest commandment. 
He responds with, love God and love others. And it wasn't one and two, it was one A and one B. You can't separate them. If they're so connected, our, our relationship with God, as Stephen pointed out earlier, our relationship with God and our relationship with one another, they're so connected, they're interconnected. Jesus would tell his disciples, whatever you did for the least of my brothers, you did it for me. So Jesus asked, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You're persecuting me. One author writes, while Saul was hitting the church, Jesus has actually been feeling the pain. So in conversion, in conversion, we have to recognize that our sins have not just been against this person or against that individual, but they've been against Jesus. When I sin, my sins don't just hurt me and those around me, but Jesus actually feels the pain. I love the song that we sing, How Deep the Father's Love. And there's a line that says, It was my sin that held him there. On the cross, Jesus quite literally felt the pain of Saul's sin and my sin and your sin. And so here's what I mean when I say conversion must include surrender. When we meet Jesus, when we encounter Christ Jesus, we are confronted with this same reality that Saul was confronted with, that our sins have been against him. When Jesus meets Saul on the road, he asks him, why do you persecute me? And when Jesus meets us, he asks us, why do you sin against me? But I thought nobody else knew about it. But I thought I'd gotten away with it. I thought I did it in secret. I thought no one had been hurt by it. Everybody else does it. But Jesus asked me, Barrett, why do you sin against me? And conversion happens when, in response, we surrender our lives to him. Conversion happens when we turn ourselves in. Guilty is charged. When we say, along with David, Jesus, I have sinned against you and you alone. Conversion is not receiving a lottery ticket into heaven. Conversion is surrendering our lives to the one who left heaven, 
because we had lost our way. And then the last similarity this morning between Saul's conversion and mine is that we both submitted our life to Jesus Christ. We both submitted our life to Jesus Christ. You see, conversion always involves submission. For these early disciples, uh, following Jesus Christ didn't simply mean believing that Jesus saved them. They submitted their lives to him as Lord. In verse 6, Jesus says to Saul, Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The conversion of Saul on the road to Damascus is an incredible illustration of submission. Saul no longer is, is the one in charge of this journey. Jesus is. And Jesus says, go into the city and wait until you're told what to do. Saul had never had anyone tell him what to do. And for the first time in his life, he has to submit to the leading of someone else. In William Willimon's commentary on Acts, he shares this great definition of submission. He says, it's going from self-confident independence to childlike dependence. It's a transformation from self-confident independence to childlike dependence. And Luke describes Saul's full submission to the words of Jesus in verse 9. After being led into Damascus by the hand for three days, he was blind and he did not eat or drink anything. Jesus said to him, go into the city and then you'll be told what to do. So he went into the city and he didn't do anything. He didn't even eat or drink. And he couldn't see anything. And he waited. I have to believe it had been, if it had been a month, Saul would still just be there waiting. Not doing anything. He was now for the first time waiting to be told what to do. That's submission. And that's where we're going to leave Saul today. And we'll pick back up next time that we're together and have an opportunity to open up his word together. But for this morning, let me remind you of what we've learned about conversion. First, conversion would not happen unless God took the initiative. It's not going to happen unless he pursued you. You're going to just continue on in your pursuits. But God's pursuing you. Conversion happens when you meet Jesus Christ. Conversion always involves surrender. Conversion always involves submission. It's surrender and it's submission. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you. Oh, man. Like, what better reason? What better reason do we need to open up your word 
then this belief that when we open your word and read it, we encounter you. That's why it's called the Holy Bible. And you know what? That's why the evil one doesn't want us to read it. That's why the evil one makes it boring. You know, it's boring and it's difficult and it's all those things. It's because when we open up these pages, we encounter you. So, Lord, I I pray. I just pray, Father, if there is someone in this room that has never encountered you, I pray that they encountered you this morning on the pages, on on Saul's way to Damascus, that someone in this room encountered you. Father, may we be, through your Holy Spirit in us, may we be people in this world, in our daily life, in our homes, where people encounter Jesus Christ. People encounter his love. People encounter his joy. People encounter his words through us. Lord, thank you for for life. Thank you for this life that we have in your precious son, Jesus. And we pray all this in his name. Amen. This morning, uh, 